Welcome to The Social Universe, a podcast by PhD students about society, politics and the academic universe. Ranging from what it's like to be a PhD student in the social sciences to how we understand and navigate things that are happening in the world around us. I'm Kate and I'm a third year politics PhD student. I'm B, and I'm currently a second year PhD student based in sociology and social policy. And I'm Ben and I'm a second year sociology of work PhD. Welcome to another episode of The Social Universe. Um, this episode is all about how austerity has set us up for the pandemic and what we think is going to come out of it at the other end. Yes, yeah, so we'll be talking about what austerity is and um, what consequences it's had for the pandemic and how we've been able to respond to it um, and also what possible solutions there might be in the future. Yeah, basically we give our hot take on what we think the solutions to the world's problems are. Okay, so um, how long has it been since our last recording? Eight weeks, 12 weeks? It's been a while. Something like that. It's been a long time. Yeah, I don't know. Not really a regular podcast right now, but I think we've got an excuse. Yeah. Um, You're getting on with your PhDs okay? I am as of the last few days, (laughs) but I was not up until that point. Um, yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've been doing an awful lot, um, mainly out of necessity, not because I've somehow got some amazing work ethic. Um, I just had to do an awful lot to kind of not, um, have to drop out basically. So I've, I've, yeah, I've been doing all right. Quite a lot has changed since I last spoke on here, including a complete redesign of my research project and focus on research questions. So yeah, <laughs> been busy. Wow. And have you done your confirmation yet? No, I'm writing that at the moment. So at the moment I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of data collection for the new study that I like, started and I'm writing my upgrade confirmation thesis as well. So that's kind of what I've been um, buried at my computer for with. <laughs> yeah, I just realised uh, I really should speak to my supervisors because mine is coming up too and I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, Ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss until you get to like, you've got a month to finish and then you start crying. But I, um, I think I've done quite a lot of the lit review and methodology bit already. So I think I might be okay. I'm just transcribing now, which is awful. Yeah, it is. I was going to say that part of the reason the last few days have been better for me is because I've suddenly realized I have to write my third year progression review and that's really motivated me a lot more. So hopefully this will be helpful to you, Ben. (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully we'll see. Uh, yeah, childcare is still an issue, but, um, in September we have childcare again, as long as there's no new lockdown. So I'll get some more work done. Okay. So yeah, today's episode is about, uh, austerity and really where we were at up to the start of the pandemic and what that now means for us in the pandemic. We know surprise to our listeners that we, uh, are very critical of austerity and the agenda behind it. And I think uh, when we talk about our research and what we found as the result of austerity, it will really highlight what a bad choice it's been over the last 10 or so years. So, so to start off, um, what is austerity and why did it all happen, uh, B? Yeah, well, I will I will start and then Kate can back me up because she's um, she's been researching a lot about austerity, but really... Um, Austerity in the UK context, well, actually around the world, is kind of like the legacy of the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008. And that is one of the um, kind of policy choices that lots of governments around the world opted for as a way of um, paying for the cost of that crisis. Um, And so one of the main things associated with austerity is spending cuts, state spending cuts, cuts to public services and and things like this, but also um, a kind of odd ideal ideology that goes along with that around um what government is for um ideas of individual responsibility and um stuff like that and one of the reasons why austerity is quite poignant is because it conjures up this kind of post-war narrative which i know kate you've been looking at a little bit about what this term is and like why it's more than just they don't use the word spending cuts and ideology ideological attacks <laughs> they say austerity like it's somehow something different yeah, I think there's a really strong sense of nostalgia around the word because when 
austerity first came in after the well around the end of the second world war there was this sense of everyone being in it together and um like funding the war effort essentially and working to to, to help um win the the second world war but not that that was entirely equal at the time. I think there's a there's a strong sense of nostalgia that maybe doesn't reflect what it was really like, but it was a much more equal experience than this version of austerity has been. Um, and actually, it did do a lot to reduce inequality um, historically because people who... Because things like rationing actually did a lot to equalise um, the way that people access food and all this sort of stuff, which I'm not suggesting we should have rationing, but it, it was actually um, quite good in terms of inequality at the time. But this time around, it's done a lot of damage. Um, and the, uh, but the government have tried to talk about it in ways that make it sound like we are in it together. Um, and that it does sort of res- like remind people of this, this wartime effort that we all did. We all chipped in. Um, and it's supposed to make everyone think that it's a really good idea and that we're all supporting each other. When actually the reality has been that the people who have been most vulnerable have been the ones who've really suffered and the richest people have basically not felt austerity in any meaningful way beyond driving over more potholes. And, um, yeah, I mean, I've talked about this in a previous podcast, but it's, it's been deeply unfair the way that it's actually been implemented, but the way the government have talked about it has made it sound like it's for everybody and we're all sticking together. Do you think that um, 10 years or so on, 12 years, 10 years on, um, that people buy that still? Uh, I don't. I think actually, so there's there was a lot of opinion polls um, up until about 2000 and. 16, 17, I can't remember exactly when they stopped, but basically pollsters stopped asking questions about austerity um, because everyone thought it was over, which of course it isn't. Um, And uh, they, for a long time, they asked people whether they thought it was necessary um, and whether they, who they blamed, whether it was the current government or the Labour government, and also whether they thought it was fair. And up until, like, I think it was one of the last few polls, basically, people said that they felt that austerity was necessary. And it was only towards the end of the polling that they started to change their minds about that. Um, and also, for a long time, they also blamed the Labour Party rather than the Conservative Party for austerity. Um, that switched a bit earlier on, but it was still the case. But almost from the very beginning, um, people did not consider austerity to be fair. So actually, even though this narrative was like really pushed and they use phrases like sticking together as a country, it does seem that people didn't actually buy that. And so I think the people who are most likely to buy it are the ones who are not necessarily aware of other people who have really suffered because they just don't know people who are severely disabled or very poor. Yeah. And what I'd add to you about that, I suppose, is um, definitely from my sort of like political activism rather than my research, you know, I've been involved in lots of anti-cut stuff for, you know, most of the period that we're talking about in terms of austerity. And um, it's gone through definite waves of people, um, you know, struggling against cuts and stuff. And one of the big things that made a difference, I think, was actually the election of Jeremy Corbyn as leader, because up until that point, um, there wasn't really a, an opposition saying that austerity was a choice and that it, that cuts were even happening in certain places. Um, I remember back in 2013, I was arguing with um, then University Minister David Willits about the fact that the NHS was being cut in terms of, you know, um, yeah, that cuts were being made. My, my dad works in NHS and he was telling me that they were, but they were still maintaining that we're not cutting core services, the NHS is safe and this sort of thing. And, um, you know, it was really difficult, almost like, to kind of get across what impact was being, what, what was happening. And then that really changed things. It was at least, yeah, it was at least then possible for people to kind of see what, and also the effects started to be felt, I guess, as well. Um, but then like you mentioned, Kate, that's when they then dropped the term and said that it was over. And that's what's so powerful, that word like austerity, because you it means so much. So you can say, you can have Theresa May elected, you can say that austerity is over and you can stop using the word austerity, you can stop the ideological kind of work that goes with it, but you're still essentially carrying out those policies of making redu- like cuts in spending um, and stuff like that. So yeah, we've still had it. We've still got it now to some extent, but uh, we don't talk about the word anymore. It's kind of had its day a bit. Yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, until they actually start increasing spending, we are still in austerity because even if they're not actually implementing any direct cuts, as long as spending stays the same level, then it's so low and 
causing so much damage to so many services, I don't think you can call it anything but austerity. Yeah, that that disc that work on the ideology behind it and the sort of official discourse uh, of um, of austerity has sort of uh, embedded it as the new normal. So I think that that PR that propaganda campaign did its job, and then yeah, like you're saying, it's not over, but maybe people just people are people are so receptive to discourses, you know, messages that it, yeah did its job. Um, I've got a question for you, Ben. <laughs> so my, me and Kate have been, you know, exploring austerity directly relation to like the research projects we've been involved in. You haven't been looking directly at austerity, but kind of one thing we suppose didn't mention is that austerity came directly out of the kind of financial crisis, but it's part of an, a longer term project around the role of the state Um and policies of what we call neoliberalism, which started under Thatcher and Reagan in terms of, you know, increased privatization and selling off of like nationalized companies. And well, they weren't company companies then and stuff that fits in a lot with what you're doing. <laughs> so how does your kind of uh, research um, tie in with kind of not necessarily austerity, but the kind of wider landscape of work in this period? Sure. Well, I, I guess, first of all, I always saw austerity as a, uh, a choice obviously and i saw it as a an extension of neoliberalism like the excuse to cut the state further and to responsibilize the individual more so they're more responsible for their own welfare and not the state so my participants are in the television industry and in the digital sector um and sort of wider creative industries and they have you know since the 80s suffered a as as many other workers like the gig economy that sort of thing suffered a gradual reduction in their workers sort of um in in their security at work and their rights at work and they are now no longer employed they're often freelance um and they're just atomized completely um unions are difficult well up until i think quite recently when things have sort of come to more of a head, uh, people have been deunionizing because they've been pitted against each other as um, competition, which I, which I guess they are because uh, it's a competitive work environment. But the backdrop to austerity is this responsabilization and this individualization that many workers, including the workers I've been interviewing, um, have felt. Yeah, and and but they 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 see it as completely natural. This this um they're in it for themselves they're they're responsible for their own uh, careers and their own destiny so again that's become sort of internalized that that way of working um for many of these people because the people i'm interviewing are sort of um early middle age mostly over 35 so they sort of grew up throughout this um throughout this period of deregulation so yeah and austerity and obviously we're going to talk about covid and the impact that furlough schemes have had and the people that have fallen through that net but a lot of the people i've been interviewing are falling through the net because of the way they're employed they're employed like uh paye freelance or just completely um sole traders or whatever and although i don't know the details sufficiently well to talk too much about it the um yeah they definitely don't have a a organization to fall back on and they are not benefiting so well from the government support at the moment was there anything on austerity that we've missed? Um, I just thought it might be worth adding the disparity between how spending cuts have been implemented um, because the the biggest cuts have been seen in... Well, the, the department that's actually suffered the most has been the Ministry of Justice. Um, so that's the police, um, but also the courts. And that has meant that for, for legal aid, um, there's been a 99% cut in funding, um, which is obviously insane. <laughs> um, and that's meant particularly for people who are challenging their benefits being cut. Um, there's been a, so much less accessibility of... Um, legal professionals to help them with um, legal battles. Uh, it's meant that actually a lot of disabled people have lost out on benefits that they may well have been entitled to because they haven't been able to access the support they need to challenge the decisions. Um, and obviously, on a related note, the um, much of the cuts have been focused on benefits. Um, so the DWP, which is the Department of Work and Pensions, have uh, also, I don't, I can't remember the numbers, but it's an enormous cut they've had, but it's been entirely focused on um, out, uh, unemployment benefits and um, 
disability benefits rather than pensions because the pensions have been protected. And so that's meant that, again, it's really vulnerable people that have really suffered, whereas departments that are seen as um, sort of, let's say, more important by the powers that be uh, have been relatively protected. Um, also, I should obviously point out that local government has really suffered as well. Um, and that that has consequences for social care because councils are responsible for social care. Um, and so, for example, the NHS, you mentioned earlier, B, that you know, there's been arguments about whether the NHS have seen cuts and actually they have been quite protected because there's been such a sense of national spirit and support for the the health service but what hasn't been taken into account is the fact that um, the number of people needing the health service has increased and so even though spending hasn't necessarily fallen it has also not kept up with demand and so there has been real terms cuts even if like if you look at the numbers it hasn't decreased. Yeah, and that's the same with education. And that's where statistics can be, you know, the government's friend, because I'll say things like more money is going to education than ever before. But actually, the amount per child is going down. In terms of the NHS, waiting lists have increased by 7.7% every single year since 2013. So in terms of being able to, you know, respond to the demand that's there, year on year, um, the capacity hasn't been there to respond. And then also in terms of the NHS, I think there's other things which like fall into the kind of wider um, so something that crossed my mind is like at the start of the COVID crisis, we'll come on to this, but there was a hundred thousand shorted in terms of health workers. There was a hundred thousand positions unfilled. And one of the, one of the problems is that in terms of nursing midwives in particular, the bursaries for student, the student bursaries were scrapped. And so, um, those students that are studying to become nurses, midwives and other medical professionals um, are having to pay, you know, full fees um, at the same time as essentially doing unpaid work in the NHS because they have to do their placements. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's very difficult for them to support themselves whilst they do that. And it's one of the reasons why a lot of, what a lot of they really struggle to recruit students. Yeah. And the final thing I would like to mention, actually, which relates to all of this is about, um, so my research was about coping and about how delivery level workers were coping with austerity. Um, the biggest kind of thing that they had to cope with was kind of an increased demand for lots and lots of services at the same time as less resources to respond. And how do you manage that? And one of those things is that lots of people have left. So there's lots and lots of turnover issues in, you know, across social care, across local government, across the health service. Um, the average social worker career is like seven years um so th that also means that there's a workforce that is uh, inexperienced <laughs> or understaffed or high sickness and there's you know that was all part of this situation we were in prior to covid starting um and other maybe unhelpful co coping strategies around trying to gatekeep services or trying to you know there's loads of things that kind of we might talk about but generally an environment that is not a, not a good one for people to be working in. Yeah, so that, that leads us on to the next part, which is um, what does this all mean for the COVID pandemic and the way people are coping? Because if you think about other countries who have not gone through the same neoliberalisation and austerity, uh, are they coping better than us? Did they have the right staffing levels and the right preparedness? for this sort of emergency where, while the effects of austerity has meant that we haven't. That's what we're going to talk about. So um, what, what, what do we know? So in the UK, one of the big issues has obviously been PPE. Now, that has been an issue in other countries as well, of course. Um, but one of the reasons it's been such a problem here has been that apart from the issues we've talked about already in terms of the NHS, they also... Um, so in the UK, we have a risk register um, and the government uses that to see what the biggest risks are to the UK. Um, and ever since, I, I forget which one it was, it might have been mad cow disease or one of those other big uh, pandemics or, yeah, swine flu possibly. Um, since then, or might have been SARS in fact, the number one risk to the country has, always, has been um, another pandemic. And so the, the, as a result of that, when this was first added to the risk register, it meant that a lot of prep work was done so that when there was another issue, because there was going to be one at some point, we would have all the equipment we needed so that we could immediately respond in an appropriate way. Um, and under the previous Labour governments, there was 
um, you know, they, they maintained the PPE levels we needed as well as other medical supplies. Um, but then since the coalition government in 2010, these supplies have been allowed to basically run down. Um, they were not renewed and it meant that a lot of the equipment that we did still have had expired or it was just no longer fit for purpose. And so one of the major medical issues we've had is that we just haven't been prepared. And so it's been a result of the lack of spending. So it's this is this is another example of what we were talking about just now about how it's not just about cutting. It's not like we've been throwing away all the equipment we had. We've just not been renewing it. And the, the problem with medical equipment is you need to keep it up to date. Um, and so the government can say, well, we, we've, we've maintained all the equipment that we had, but that's that's not adequate. And so that's just one example of how these attitudes have caused so much problems. And are these are these stores run centrally by the government or are they outsourced to um, Serco or some other dodgy? Uh... There is there is a central government like stockpile, which is ran by a subsidiary company, I think, but it is an NHS subsidiary. But the value of that stockpile has fallen by 40 percent since 2013. Um, and Kate was just talking about the National Risk Register in 2015. Um, it predicted that there was between a one in 20 and a one in two, which is quite a big range, but <laughs> chance of there being a global pandemic hitting Britain in the next five years. Of course, 2015, five years later, 2020, that, is, that has happened. But the other thing that I wanted to mention related to this is that there was a drill in 2016, like a cross-government agency drill. And we failed spectacularly in terms of the NHS being able to cope um, and a whole series of recommendations were made coming out of that and they weren't followed up. Um, so it wasn't unknown the situation we were in. You know, it's not like, like Kate was saying, like we've we've had this as the number one threat for a long time and measures were put in place, but as a consequence of austerity and other reasons, that investment hasn't continued and therefore we weren't in a, a good place to respond. And it is true that other countries have also had austerity. So to some extent, we're not comparing like the UK versus the world who didn't have austerity, but nevertheless, it's happened differently. And one of the big things I think is if you look at a country like Germany, they've got a lot of industry still. Um, and so their ability to also respond by producing PPE and equipment and machines and other things was a lot higher, but also a difference is in terms of um, resources. So at the start of the crisis, we had 4,000 ICU beds and there was 8,000 in Italy and 28,000 in Germany. So, um, and in fact, as a whole, we are 35th in the world in terms of the average number of hospital beds in general per person. So, you know, that's not awful. 35th is better than, you know, 200 and something. But equally, we're like, I think the fifth or sixth richest country in the world. So you would expect us to be somewhat higher. Um, and again, you can't compare directly, but that is because we've got different, you know, health systems. But that is just like an indication in terms of how ready we were when it all happened. Yeah. What I mean... Is it just the arrogance of the people in charge to think that this will never happen? The the worst case will never happen, so that we won't fix it. Or is it is it just purely a case of the the numbers not being the money there? Or it seems I, you would why wouldn't you fix the problem with the pandemic readiness? I mean, if you were a sensible, uh, ec economically minded government, which they claimed claimed to be this would be the prudent choice to do, the rational economic thing to do, wouldn't it? But they just couldn't be bothered, maybe. <laughs> what do you think, Kate? Oh, I'm really struggling to answer that question because I do not have a reasoned academic response. I have a personal <laughs> political response. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I think it's... Um, they're gambling with us as a country. Um, they wanted to reduce their spending and they decided to take the risk, to put it in the in polite terms. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get all... Uh... Yeah, I don't want to turn this into a different podcast, but I think... I mean, I've been looking a lot at dialectics, which I'm not going to go into now, but I think this is one of the things, especially with the role of the state, is that it isn't... It, it, it plays a contradictory role. It, it It is there and has been there for a long period to be able to provide the services that I suppose big business and capitalist needs in terms of education and health and, and a legal system and, and like lots of 
things that need to happen in society. And it makes sense for that to be done semi-centrally. But at the same time, the state also is there to like, you know, keep the economy going and, um, and the, the policy that, that our government has been pursuing and many of the Western ones for the last like 30 years in terms of neoliberalism is one of reduced spending, reduced, um, central role. And also, um, just, oh, I don't, I'm not a massive, I'm not, I'm not brilliant on economics, but in terms of like pumping money in, making things available to be asset stripped, our economy isn't running on the basis of manufacturing at the moment. It's on the basis of kind of like financial services and all that kind of stuff. And that all has implications in terms of um, all of this, I suppose. So I would say it is completely logical because what has happened as a consequence of COVID is a massive financial crisis that is what is awful for everybody. Like, you know, it's bad for those that are, have been making a lot of money in the last decade. Um, but equally, there would have been a financial crisis sooner had the government not been doing what it was doing and passed on cuts to like big businesses and stuff. And so at that point it was prioritizing them. And actually it wasn't inevitable that it would take in the route it did in terms of lockdown either, because at first the whole herd immunity and everything else in the past, when there's been pandemic pandemics in 1918 with uh, Spanish flu, they didn't take any measures. They just let it run its course. So like <laughs> in a, in a way, um, that's kind of what they looked like they were going to do until they then realised that was going to be completely untenable. And I think also when they realised that it wasn't flu, because for a long time they were talking about it like it was flu and flu is a very different thing to the coronavirus. Um, so yeah, anyway, that was a rant, Soz. <laughs> I was going to add, I think one of the other issues has been that for so many public services for so long, the the funding situation has been so dire that they've been firefighting. And so for the NHS in particular, I don't exactly know how the budgets are divided up, but the so much money has gone into just keeping going with all the things that they really had to keep going. So stuff that might seem precautionary and therefore extra, maybe it's just not been a priority because they've had to spend money on the, the actual people that are there dying in front of them rather than people that might die in 10 years time. Um, and so I think that's been part of the problem as well. Yeah, that's that's like that's really key. And actually, what relates to that that I read that you all might have views on is at the start of the crisis, there was um, three hundred twenty thousand homeless with one point three million destitute people in the UK and one point two million people using food banks. And so, I mean, in terms of that need that has existed, you can understand why all services have been prioritising doing whatever they can to meet the immediate need in front of them rather than thinking about, you know, the future. Yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, Ben, do you want to say anything about work? I think I sort of said it in, t in terms of work, the way people are employed, uh, which is precarious, uh, short-term contracts, uh, and, and, and more and more, uh, as freelancers, particularly in the industries that I've been looking at, uh, it just means that they, um, and, and, and yeah, like I say, that is a consequence of the neoliberal agenda, as far as far as I see it. Um, they have been been left to their own devices, and they are they are falling through the. That it's interesting talking about the response to COVID because a lot of it is quite uh, quite a um, departure from austerity and typical Tory uh, economics because the amount of money they have provided to support you know. Um, as a result of their uh, unpreparedness, but you know the 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 way that for some reason that they um, they haven't filled all the plugged all the gaps and people are really struggling. Uh, the, the, a lot of people can work from home in the sort of industries that I'm researching. So digital sector particularly has been a very easy transition. But for example, TV productions have all been stopped. So there are people who are almost all freelance, really really struggling to to make ends meet at the moment. And, it, and these people are broadly middle-class and quite affluent. So it's very much different to, uh, you know, those, those that were previously marginalized, but um, as a result of the, the way the system has worked, there is suddenly an awful lot more pressure on these people. And if they are able to claim uh, universal credit, for example, like there's much more pressure on that system. I don't know too much about it, but. I think that has been one of the um, eye-opening things about it, actually, is that a lot of people who, as you say, are maybe more middle class and have never had to rely on benefits before are suddenly 
noticing how little money people on benefits get and how much of a struggle it is because there was this outcry towards the beginning of the crisis about hang on is this all we get <laughs> um and actually that's a lot of people have been living on that money for 10 years because the benefits have been cut but also they also there's been a lock on increasing them in line with inflation so people have actually been continuing to lose money in addition to the cuts that have been specifically made i mean in in the states uh they've had like uh you know checks sent out to them for like twelve hundred dollars a week or no six hundred dollars a week uh like as a blanket sort of um basic income uh, which has been way a way better response it seems than the admin involved in this one but i suppose the government's gone in a different route so um the furlough scheme i think at its height it, the government was essentially paying the wages of i think nine million uk workers so um they could have not done that, but given everybody blanket money, the, the key thing I suppose for them is the need for people to spend and to have money in their pocket and knowing that if they hadn't have done the furlough scheme, there would have been mass redundancies earlier on in the year. And they're hoping that they can avoid some of that. But obviously now the furlough scheme has kind of come into an end, I think more and more redundancies will be announced. But um I suppose it's a question, isn't it? Because I would, if I was American and I've been given $600 or whatever, I'd say, okay, can I have that every, every week, please? Thanks. Um, so, you know, it make, yeah, I guess by people that have been made redundant going on to universal credit, there's like a kind of existing system for them to be swallowed into rather than a new thing. Um, I wanted to say a little bit about some of the, it's not necessarily positives, but I think we were talking about, you know, austerity and the pressures and, you know, staffing shortages and other things that have been going on in the public sector, which is what I research. And one of the consequences of that is that there's just no space or time to think creatively about different ways of doing things or problem solving. You are just firefighting, like you were saying, Kate. And one of the things that kind of COVID has confronted people with is needing to do things differently. And, um, because, you know, work that's traditionally been done face to face and um, meetings that have been done face to face and, and everything have suddenly had to go remote um, for the first time. And there's lots of um, challenges and difficulties with that. But there's also been quite a lot of opportunities um, for people to rethink their practice. And a lot of the people I've been interviewing um, from across public sector that work with children have been talking about the kind of opportunities that poses to think about the sort of stuff they just haven't had time to think about or do um, in terms of developing resources and alternative ways of kind of delivering what they do. Um, and I suppose that's kind of like something we've lost is 10 years worth of kind of innovation and uh, stuff, but that is coming kind of out of COVID as well in a strange way. A bit more positive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be smiley. Yeah, certainly the people I've been speaking to uh, have really uh, mixed feelings, but they've benefited from this time of reflection and, uh, re- you know, it's been good for them in a way. And I suppose the other thing is that we, um, where, like we were talking about how like, you know, when things are all kind of going off and you just have to do what's in front of you, lots of this kind of gig economy work, zero hours work, casual work and, and other sorts of kind of precarious employment. It's not like people haven't known what's wrong with it. They have, but you just kind of fingers crossed that you'll be OK because at least you've got a job and it's something to do. And I suppose what COVID's done kind of en masse is like all at the same time shown everyone at the same time, the fragility of that, like, you know, um, you know, if you're on a zero hours contract that your, your work could seize up, but you kind of hope it doesn't, <laughs> but then, you know, a whole, whole load of people in loads of different industries have suddenly found that happen at the same time. And that like, there's this reflection in terms of different ways of doing work, but there's also this reflection in terms of what kind of is meaningful work and decent conditions. And there's a whole load of questions I think being asked by people all at the same time in terms of what the future of post COVID looks like. Yeah. Well, um, let's talk about that. So I know there was an opinion poll that said only 12% of people want to go back to how it was prior to COVID. I think there's a big appetite for people now that they've seen things can be different from the pollution to the, um, to the way we work from home and the way that, um, we support each other and rally around the NHS for a serious change that is very much different to, the way we were living under austerity for the past 10 years. Um, so, yeah, what do we think is going to happen in the future now that the um, the government have intervened so heavily and people have seen that? Well, I think there's a risk that... Um, Boris has said that we won't return to austerity and I don't believe a word he says. Um, 
because for a start, the number of times the Conservatives have told us that austerity is over and then implemented more spending cuts suggests that we shouldn't believe them. Um, But I think there's a very strong chance that we're going to end up in a financial crisis and we are then going to see spending cuts because that is the Conservatives' response to that problem. Um, And I am very afraid of that, partly because I think it's going to do a lot of damage to... our economy, actually, even though theoretically it's for the economy, um, but also to the people who are going to be victims of more cuts. Um, but I think people have swallowed this narrative so much that austerity is the like necessary thing to solve solve the crisis, um, the financial crisis. That is um, that I think if if people. If politicians say that we need it again, then people won't challenge it because in my research, I talk to people about um, the cuts and whether they thought they were necessary. And the majority of people said to me that they thought that they didn't like the way cuts been implemented, a lot of them, but nearly everybody said that the cuts were right to have been done. And so I think if without a lot more critical reflection on whether or not that's true, which I don't know if Labour will provide us with, um, I think the Conservatives will probably tell us again that it's, well, to quote Margaret Thatcher, we've got to take our medicine um, and that that's that's what's going to happen. We're going to have cuts and we're not going to question it. It's kind of, um, I, I agree, I agree that that's the kind of, because they've done such a good job of talking about the economy like a household budget. So you know, if you spend so much, you've had to spend loads to keep the economy going during COVID and at some point they're going to have to come back for that money through spending cuts. And I think that therefore will be logical to some people. At the same time, the amount the government has been able to spend and then also the amount of money that the Bank of England is like injected into the economy, um, like months after Jeremy Corbyn's programme was like outlandish for being, you know, spending, you know, more money than existed. I think it's definitely not, um, it's not, it's a dynamic process. It's ongoing, but certainly I'd be thinking about like, you know, where did that money just come from? Actually, yes, austerity was a choice um, because they could have, you know, this money has existed or the potential to be able to, to, to spend has been there the whole time. Um, at the, so I don't think that there will be a return to austerity as a narrative in the same way because of how unpopular it's become as a kind of, um, but I, but, but austerity in terms of what it represents in terms of at some point we're going to need to, uh, be asked to pay for the amount of money that is being spent now, then absolutely that that's going to happen. Um, unless obviously there's some sort of resistance to that and that can come in different forms. It can come through, you know, a political opposition like the Labour Party. I don't think that's likely, um, given the current leader. Um, but it could come in other ways in terms of, you know, trade unions um, resisting attacks as they come and things like that. And there could well be new movements that spring up, new political parties that form. Um, you know, there's lots of um, possibilities, is what I'm going to say, for how it could develop. <laughs> there is, but I think, I mean, this is literally the topic of my PhD, that the when, when austerity, well, for initially the financial crisis and then austerity when it was implemented, um, we saw Occupy protests and we saw the student movement and then it all faded out after about two years and then we just rolled over and let it happen, basically. And I just worry that what with the Black Lives Matter movement as well, which has been so powerful, um, if we might see another big movement like that, but maybe more related to the economy, um, just like we did with Occupy, but is it going to last? I, I just don't, I, I don't have much faith that it's going to change anything because it didn't <laughs> over the last yeah, 10 years. So why would this be different? <laughs> we don't, we don't have a functioning press in this country. For, for example, why didn't we investigate Russian interference in Brexit? That should have been a government ending story and it just disappeared in a couple of days as far as I was aware. There is no press that functions that can hold people to count. And, you know, we all know I'm a fan of uh, Jezza, but back when he was elected, um, they were running sort of like soft pieces about how, what a nice guy Jeremy Corbyn is and he's not like other politicians and all that sort of stuff. And then those guys got the message to, uh, you know, this is a bit dangerous for our way of life. We need to squash this. And we saw the, you know, um, they were fucking smears, weren't they, against a lovely guy who had an alternative narrative. 
And uh, now we have nothing. We have, I'm very pessimistic that we will have, even if we have more like Occupy or um, a socialist sort of alternative offered, that there's any chance of getting anywhere near power because the state and the press are in cahoots to keep it as it is. What do you both think is like the critical feature? Because I I agree. I think we will see things come and go because I think it's inevitable that people will try and like, not everyone, but some people will resist and fight back. Um, But like you say, we've seen that previously and things come and go. What is it that um, is the like decisive factor? I don't know what the solution is, but I think part of the problem is that the that a lot of people just don't think politicians will listen. And so you do have these movements where it feels very powerful. I mean, there was someone I interviewed um, for my research who talked about how they were part of the student movement. And then the first protest they went to, there was, I suppose, it 55,000 people or something, and then a very small number of police. And then the next one, the number of people participating decreased significantly, but the police went up enormously. And then after that, they just felt like... The, the movement had fizzled and that it was very hard to maintain momentum. Um, and so I think that what you need is is a feeling among people that it's worth it and that politicians will listen because a lot of people, when that initial momentum is gone, you need something else to sustain it. Um, you know, you're not going to have protests every week because that's just not what happens in Britain. But you you need other movements that can be more sustaining and more um, more powerful, actually. But I just I don't know where that's going to come from. And I, I as I say, I don't have the answer to that. But I think it's there's this real sense among the people I interviewed, at least for my research, that politicians don't care and that they are not going to change their minds about anything. Yeah, I agree. I would say the critical feature, and obviously we we can talk about this in other pods, and we can see what happens in the next period. Is um, it's it's political leadership. Um, and uh, vehicles for like combining movements and like operate like because one of so in 2011 there was a big pension strike and a lot of things been building up to there but at that point Unison made a deal and it was a massive setback Ben I don't know if you were a teacher then it was over pensions but it was a massive setback and uh, it kind of was a real betrayal that kind of really set everything back had those strikes continued there was like a million people on strike that could have been a turning point it might not have been we don't know but I suppose like the role of kind of um the same thing with the with the student movement like the the NUS like massively sold out the students and I think um obviously you know leaders will come and go but out of struggles like people will emerge and it's like how can they uh link up different struggles that that kind of may come out of this period in a way that can kind of be its own political voice. Like, I agree, politicians are, uh, a lot of people don't trust them. And so there poses a need for people to kind of have their own mechanisms of political voice. Um, but a lot of the time, these movements and, and demos and whatever, they don't go into that. So it's, a, it's an expression on the streets that then doesn't materialise in any kind of organised form to be anything more than that. That's what I'm trying to say. Whereas if that that step can be taken, that it becomes a more of an organised um movement with goals like that that it's trying to aim for achieve for like a program I think that that is a good step but we'll see what do you think Ben well just on um on the teachers pensions uh we did like a series a couple of one day strikes which is completely pathetic I went on the rallies in London saw Jeremy Corbyn for the first time actually and and then Matt Rack from the FBU and Christine Blower and it's all very exciting and um you know, we've got, we, you know, us teachers should get together and sort this out. And then teachers are so depoliticized. It wasn't going to happen. We need a, we need a serious political education for the masses in this country, which we don't have. Like if you look at, um, like we would never have a general strike here because people aren't in unions for a start. And even if they are, they're toothless and tepid in my opinion, most of them. Um, so if things are going to change properly, we need a mass movement, don't we? And I don't, I can't see that happening because I think going back to my thing about the press, there's no free press realistically that with any mass audience and, um, uh, the power of right-wing media and social media is so vast that we're just pitted against each other 
and there's no solidarity beyond the groups that are already, you know, I think there's a, there's, there's going to be a limit to that. As we saw in December when we had the chance to change the way things run and it didn't go down very well. One thing you've reminded me of, Ben, is that the one exception I would say to the lack of power in strikes is the junior doctors strikes that happened. And when I talk to people about petitions they've signed in particular, so many people told me they'd signed petitions about the junior doctors, about conditions for doctors. And I think that because we have such a strong um, love of the NHS of this country, I think if doctors and nurses and you know other care workers came out and said, this is not acceptable, we can't take any more cuts, we need serious investment and we need to be treated better given pay rises and you know like meaningful ones then i think that could be that could actually make a difference to the public psyche because we are so invested in the nhs like emotionally um and more so like unfortunately than we are for teachers or other professionals that are kind of allowed to just suffer <laughs> yeah and some demonstrations the last few days have, have, have taken place around like nurses pay rise and I mean, that could, that could make a difference. I don't know, but that feels more hopeful to me. Well, success has that effect, I suppose, because it's like you were saying, if you get into a demoralised state of austerity, where it's, you've almost um, internalised the neoliberal idea of everything going to hell and da da da, da. <laughs> actually victories can really break that cycle to show that things can change. So in summary, austerity as the solution to the last financial crisis, left us unable to adequately respond to the crisis that's happened. And it has, you know, triggered a new financial crisis. So on the fallout of this financial crisis, which I think at this point isn't an if, I think it's a a definite and it could even become a depression, not a recession. Mm -hmm. Um, Then what is the solution to that? And I suppose those of us that have studied and understand austerity and the impact it's had want to be part of, you know, campaigning, arguing, using whatever voice we've got to ensure that uh, austerity isn't the route that's taken, but that poses what alternatives are there. So we've spoken about ways we can struggle for that (laughs) or not struggle, but what actually could we be putting forward as a solution? Over to you two. I mean, the main obvious answer is taxing. And I think people don't think of taxation as a viable way of raising money to respond to a crisis of debt. Um, Whether or not debt is as big an issue as the Conservatives want us to think is a completely different question. Um, But even if it is a big problem, then you you can raise money through other means other than just accepting your fate and just cutting spending. Because, I mean, if you you tax corporations like Amazon um, the way they should be, then we would raise a huge amount of money to spend on the, the services that we just so desperately need. But I think a lot of people don't sort of think of that as the solution. Instead, they just think, well, cuts is the only option because that's what that's what we've been told for years. <laughs> I think uh, we've got to look at this holistically. Uh, there's Brexit coming up, yay. And we've got uh, an environmental and climate crisis so we've got to look at this holistically we've got brexit and we've got an ecological and climate crisis all looming and we can build back green uh build back better that way and we just have to go full bore on that this is this pandemic is a foretaste of what's to come and if we deal with this properly through massive tax reform and i mean tax the rich um building our green economy and with rewilding and reforming our ag- agriculture. So we're all much healthier and much more in tune with nature. That's my view. That's good. I agree. I absolutely agree. I think there's the, it comes down to two things, which is who has got the money at the moment? Like, is it actually public spending where all the money's going? No, not really. There's massive wealth hoards in the hands of the super rich who aren't investing it in infrastructure and other projects because they've not got confidence they'll make a profit. And so at the moment, there's been a massive accumulation of wealth that isn't being spent. Nothing useful is happening with that money. If it was 
tax and then it could be spent on all sorts of things that would help us get out of the financial crisis through spending and and the things like green jobs. But obviously for that to happen, it's not just about being able to tax. It's also about who decides how that money's spent and therefore having some sort of control over how that's spent. And so there needs a kind of political voice. So yes, it's not straightforward, but there is the possibility that the money is there, the ideas are there and the potential projects are there to be able to both kind of create jobs improve people's lives, invest in, in things that improve society. But it's yeah, there's who no, there's no decides how that's good spent. ideas, is there? So uh, it's just implementing I mean, it. look at us. We've got loads of them. <laughs> I think we should be in charge. I, <laughs> I agree, Ben. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the, fact is, us. the fact is we would do a much better job. It just is. The three of us, though, for the few <laughs> assistants. A few assistants. <laughs> Vote Social Universe. <laughs> FYI, I don't want to dictate a ship of the uh, social universe. Social universe for control of the universe. This is going way off topic, probably, but you know, <laughs> states that have more control have done better at, at greening their economies quicker and at the response to the pandemic. Is democracy overrated? No, more democracy, please. No, yeah, I agree. It's a combination of both. It is, it is planning, isn't it? It's how it's planned for. Um, and who has got the resources, who controls the resources in whose interests? Yeah. I mean, again, this is rambling on, but I'm a, I'm an anarcho-Buddhist, I've realised. <laughs> I won't go into that now. Or a I didn't know what eco- you were going to say. I love it. <laughs> or, or a social ecologist. But um, no, I'm, I'm for small, I'm a, you know, ideally for communes and, anarch- and anarchy, anarchist type stuff. But do we need big state control? Probably for these, these responses to such things. On the way to a different time of society, a manifesto for the uh, 99% is what we just put out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, should we wrap up? Well, that's it for this episode. Uh, thanks for listening. Um, next time, we'll be back with our long-awaited episode on parenting and PhDs. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to hear um, fr- just perspectives from a few different people, actually, about what it's been like to be a parent in academia um, and... I will be listening to that with interest as I am not one so it'll be um, great to hear from Ben and some other people we know if you'd like to ask questions or have your say on the issues we're discussing you can find us on Twitter at universe underscore social or you can email us at social.universe at outlook.com thanks for joining us and hope you enjoyed this trip around the social universe